I uh, got spirited up out of uh, San Francisco, out of a public school in San Francisco, because Yale had a very innovative uh, admissions director at the time who wanted to make it a national school and not a prep school feeder. And I'd um, built a couple of harpsichords, which seemed quite weird to them. And they offered me a scholarship that I could go there for the same cost as going to UC Santa Cruz. So I was like, okay, let's give it a try. I'd done music super seriously all up till, you know, going to college. And I really thought I want to get away from it. I really want to try hard not to do music. And Obviously, super seriously, you built a harpsichord. Yeah, yeah, I was in love with them, the sound of it, from the time I was like 10 or 11. And uh, there was no other way I was going to get one than by, um, you know, talking my parents into paying for a kit and then vanishing into the basement for a summer and building most of it. And yeah, it's a nice little instrument, actually. You, you can buy a harpsichord <clears throat> kit. Yeah, you can still buy them, actually. But at the time, it was, uh, you know, it was a way that this was back when hardly any harpsichords were around. And it was still, you know, very much of a strange thing. And so it was a practical way to get an instrument to play. I mean, they're much more refined now, but people still build them. Yeah, yeah. Um, I guess it's that difference between a highly industrialized product like a modern piano and a still essentially handcrafted instrument like a harpsichord yeah i guess there's no big well i'm sure there are but nobody's heard of them like a big harpsichord company that just churns out tons of harpsichords Um, no there there's not a there are no benefits of scale in it yeah uh there are no cast iron parts where you can make a single mold and uh, and stamp it out so each one kind of just gets built out of basically wood hardly any hardly any steel parts in it at all so it's basically just all handcrafted still harpsichords Yeah. yeah yeah Yeah. And you were the kind of kid that would, I want to build a harpsichord. Well, there's nothing like desire. I mean, I'd barely passed woodshop the year before. Uh, trying to you know, square a piece of wood with a plane pretty much defeated me. But somehow, the sheer desire. And the idea was this was a, a single manual instrument, and I really wanted a larger double manual one. So the idea was I'd build the single manual one and sell it, and then be able to buy the double manual one. So there was a sort of workmanship standard that I had to to meet, you know, it had to be good enough that someone would buy it. So, so how old are you? 17, 18? You're building mm, harpsichords? 14, actually. 14? <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah. So you were that, and this is in, where, this was in San, California? San Francisco, yeah. Oh and I had, I had some really, really important help from my stepfather at crucial points along the way. It's the finest cabinetry work he helped me with, but, you know, most of it I did myself. Is this how you know instruments? Could you build other instruments? Did you build other instruments? No, but I suppose, you know, that experience can make you feel a little bit more intimate with I've never really taken apart a piano, but my favorite pianist, Blair McMillan, carries a um, piano technician's kit along with him everywhere he goes. And I've seen him, you know, rework the action of a piano before playing a piece of mine. So I have a huge admiration for that. I guess I have enough experience to know what he's doing. Anyway, you go to, you end up going to, uh, uh, to you, Yale. You, know, you leave California, you end up going to, to Yale, Yale because they had an interesting program and they yeah. thought, oh, wow, yeah. this kid's building harpsichords. Yeah, yeah. So but, this must be something. And, and they told me everyone was going to be interesting and smart. And I was like, ah, that I'll believe when I get there. But they actually all were interesting and smart. Um, and I tried very hard not to do music the first year. I somehow just, I wanted to, something about it, that I just wanted to see if I could live without it. But I did take one harmony course. And that was with a um, Turkish composer named Bülent Arel. No one else could understand his accent in the course, but I like took him instantly. So, but that was just a theory course. I was just, you know, okay, a little bit of music while I do everything else. Why did you want to see if you could live without it? I mean, you're building harpsichords. You have an 
insatiable passion. I'm assuming if you're if you're going through yeah. those lengths, and then all of a sudden you're you know, like, I wonder if I can live without this. That's a really good question. Maybe at the back of my mind there was some question about whether this was a uh, family business I was going into, or whether it was really me. My my stepfather was a choreographer and a dancer, and had a lot of you know Boulez and Stockhausen going in his studio when I was growing up, and rather different from uh, from you know many other you know composers I know. There was always a little, a little bit of question at the back of my mind. Is this really me? So I guess I wanted to find that out. What, what did your mother do? Oh, uh, she was a self-styled psychoanalyst, psychotherapist. Yeah, I was sort of. It was kind of artsy house. Yeah, yeah, yeah I can imagine. Yeah. So, what did you find out, out well, after? Uh, after after the end of the year, a classmate of mine uh, who was a violinist uh, came up to me the first week of sophomore year and said, "We're playing a recital in December." You know, I'll play, you know, violin and piano. And I was like, uh, do I have a choice? And he said, no. And I said, okay. <laughs> so I was back into performing. And I, so, I, so I got pretty serious about it at that point. And I kept taking music courses, trying not to major in music, but couldn't resist and eventually did. And, you know, took composition courses, I suppose, but without really knowing whether that was what I wanted to do. When I graduated, I had a choice of going out to Cal Arts for the first year that they were in existence or staying at Yale and doing a teaching fellowship for a year. And I thought, well, that's a one-time opportunity. Cal Arts, I can always go next year. So, um, so I did the teaching fellowship, and you're supposed to take one graduate course with it. And I wasn't sure whether it would be piano or composition, but there I was in the composition majors meeting. And it really was halfway through that year that it like dawned on me, wait a minute, this is really my calling. What you were doing... So this was Just like a piano performance before that. Yeah, and I was taking, you know, all the kind of uh, theory and composition courses you might take, you know, if you were preparing to be a composer, but without ever really thinking of myself as heading for that. So I'm assuming what at this point you're in your early 20s. Yeah, yeah. And uh and I had continued to um take classes with Arel and uh that year year after graduating, I was like what do I do now? He said, wait a while. And then a few months later, he said, well, I just accepted a job at Stony Brook. Come with me. So, uh, so I followed him to Stony Brook and did a master's in composition with him at Stony Brook. And then he was like, okay, I think you're ready for New York. I'll make a phone call. What does that mean, I think you're ready for New York? I'll make a phone call. And who did he call? I'm talking a little out of school here, but after all, it's, all, it's a long time ago, so it should be okay. Yeah, it's fine. Um, when I was thinking about going straight to Columbia from Yale, he was like, Conrad, those bastards will eat you alive. Why? What, is he, what did he mean by that? <laughs> it was a pretty tough environment at that point. And finally, after two years at Stony Brook, what he actually said was, okay, you are now tough enough for those bastards. I make a phone call. So basically, he had an in in the school, but he wanted to wait till he thought you were ready before yeah, he yeah. Helped, helped you out with that. Yeah. And so when I got to Columbia, um, there were quite a few uh, living dead walking around. They were Warrenon's former students. He had um, gotten fired from Columbia the year before in a huge tenure dispute and was teaching at Manhattan School. But they had opted to stay and try to finish out the program. Yeah, many of them uh, went on to find their own voices and, you know, do wonderful work. But at the time, they all looked like cult members who had lost their, their cult leader. And they, they kind of had this zombie expression on their faces and it was, a, it was a tough environment if you, you know, were trying to follow Describe your own Describe the environment voice. a little bit more. What's the prevailing style? What's that school like at that? Because right now it has a very unique profile, but this was... Well, this was a long time yeah, ago. This was a so, long time um, ago, so, so what was the Warren, environment like? Warren in the Shadow was still there. 
Babbitt, bless his heart, I love love the guy, was still very much an influence. Usachevsky and Davidovsky were um, big teachers. Joe Wensung was. Jack Beeson was there, and I, I learned a lot from him in a little time, but everyone looked down their noses at him. You wouldn't believe it, because, my God, he uses triads. Can you believe that? And what's worse, he writes opera. Oh, my God. So it was, it was a little bit of uh, dogmatic. Well, the funny thing is that no one thought of themselves as dogmatic. They because that's like, a negative word. Nobody wants but, to think of but themselves even, as that. Even so, they were like, well, we're not like Princeton. I mean, you don't have to do 12-tone music here. But it still was a, a, a very, very, on the one hand, kind of exciting, but on the other, constricting environment. What was your music like at the time? Well, I was always a little bit bored by doing 12-tone stuff and um, figured out how to do it, but I could never stay interested in it. I think that maybe I didn't have enough problems with my skin it's one of the really enjoyable things I heard Aurel say that he had one composer who was trying hard to write music and having a terrible time doing it, wanted to somehow integrate tonal and non-tonal stuff. And he had some independent project and he was not sleeping at night and everything. And his, he was breaking out uh, acne all over. And, uh, and Aurel said, um, you know, I told him that he should start writing 12 tone and wow, his skin cleared up right away. You're saying that basically even back then when that kind of thinking was seen as like intellectually difficult and pushing forward the truth is it's automatic the truth is and that stress it, that, free in that, a way. It's a, that it's a way of avoiding difficult decisions in this case for this person and I, I don't know i just always enjoyed it's too good a story not to tell yeah it, it had an element of and i recently uh heard by third hand a quote from favorite musician of mine a performer who was coaching uh, a warren piece and said to the players, forget about the pitches, they're just generated. And this was a performer talk, who, who loved the music, who was talking about how to approach performing it. So you were really in the thick of this uh, generation that was really kind of, because we all, people hear about it now, what the environment, what the academic environment was like yeah. back when you were in school. And yeah. you were also, you know, you were on the East Coast, so mm -hmm. you were kind of mired in it. How do you deal with criticism? Because you're, you're so clearly not that, right? <laughs> How does an individual deal with that environment if you're not drinking the Kool-Aid? <laughs> right, yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, the fact is people like Davidovsky at the time were, um, were comparatively looser than many. So I didn't have any awareness of how constrained I was. I just thought this was, well, just how it, how it is, how it needs to be. And I know I wasn't doing the super, super controlled stuff. But, you know, it still sounded like angular 1970s music. I was thinking about it since last night, uh, this wonderful presentation that Timo Andres and Peter, I can't remember his last name, a uh, wonderful designer did for Timo's record launch. It's very easy to remember at this point how stultifying the modern music dogma was at the time. But if I run the movie backward another five years or six years from being at Columbia, I remember hearing uh, Stockhausen Gruppen as a 16, 17-year-old and just thinking it was the most exciting piece of music I'd ever heard and that really nothing else mattered. I remember uh, Babbitt and, and Davidovsky coming to Yale my junior year and doing a you know Columbia-Princeton electronic music show and I was just thinking, God, who needs any other kind of music? This stuff is so exciting. So in retrospect, it's very easy to remember the battle of finding one's way out of it. And it's easy to forget 
that there was also something, at least in the early part of it, very seductive. This feeling of, a, of something that just turned its back on everything and created something wildly new that no one had ever seen before. What made it bottom out like that for you? Like if it was finishing, so exciting in the first place? Uh, finishing school. I mean, I stayed in school as long as I possibly could because I, I was getting paid to be a student. So you know, I figured I wasn't going to be getting paid when I wasn't, so I better draw it out. And I felt at Columbia that I was very free, that I was able to write whatever I wanted and you know, had a supportive environment around me. Felt that way at the time. Uh, and then I was teaching at Brooklyn College and wrapped up my doctorate. Uh, and he, like six months after that, I was six, eight months, I was sitting in my chair writing. And I was like, oh, shit. I had no idea how constrained I was by that environment. I had no idea. Good Lord. I can do anything now, can't I? Wow. How old are you at this time? Oh, not a youngster. You know, I was like 26, 27, 28 or something like that. Oh, that's probably. a youngster. I mean, people, you know, people <laughs> enter PhD programs now at that age. Oh, I guess that's right. Yeah. Okay, so now you have this freedom. What happens? Well, I still am writing music that from this vantage point sounds very much of its time. So I'm at Brooklyn College for a couple of years and I'm, you know, I've been at Stanford a lot doing their computer music thing and uh, and I pay some short visits to IRCOM, and then they invite me to come for six months. So I throw, throw up everything here and just have an extremely exciting time there. Uh, write a piece f there using computer voice synthesis, computer singing voice synthesis. Why are you doing all this traveling? Just because there are opportunities for you to get stuff done or there's people there who you want to work with or... I wanted to live in Paris. <laughs> I know, but you also said Stanford too, right? Oh, well, yeah. I mean, if I was going to be, you know, back visiting my family in the summers in San Francisco, oh, right, yeah. it was uh, easy enough. And I, you know, cut my teeth with tape music and, and you know, all the old-fashioned big boxes with knobs on them um, in, you know, synthesizer music. And people were starting to do digital synthesis and... The only place that anything was coming out of that I could stand to listen to was Stanford. So I figured, okay, let's, let's find out what it's about. And then it turned out that IRCOM basically took the Stanford group and transplanted them to Paris. So everyone knew me, and they were like, hey, yeah, come over. Why were you dying to go to Paris? Well, I grew up in a kind of Eurocentric family. My stepfather had um, danced with Martha Graham before he moved to San Francisco, and everything was better in New York, and my mom was an um, immigrant from Russia, and everything was better in Europe and Russia. And so a little bit was like, well, I want to experience this. And I'd been over a couple of times, and I had kind of adoptive family over there, and was, you know, getting so I could speak the language pretty well. And it was like, I just want to live here for a while. How long are you there for? A little more than a year. Yeah, that's it nice. Quite, it was quite a dream. I went through the, um, the archetypical uh, expatriate cycle, which was total romantic delight at first, and then a gradual questioning of whether I was prepared to see through the romance to an actual life. And I saw plenty of people who had been in Paris for decades who still saw it as a romance rather than a life. And then I had some friends who um, were really committed to becoming French, uh, one particular friend. Uh, 
And that was very different. How is it possible to see it as a romance if you've been there for a day? I mean, practicality seeps. I, mean, I don't know how to, they you, did you it, have to but earn they money were, and you know, this was, he's like, he was like a um, art professor at an American school, and they lived, you know, kind of idyllic left bank life. But it, it didn't feel real to me. It didn't, it didn't feel like, you know, they were really part of the fabric of the city or the culture. So I was like, you know what? I really am a, uh, you know, good old-fashioned, rough, vulgar American. Let's embrace it. <laughs> okay. um, and, you know, the, also the, the environment there was pretty darn rigid. And I wrote a piece that also would sound to me very much of the time, that, that piece with the computer voices and some marvelous Michael McClure poetry that's all growls and roars and things. And I played it for a guy who was then running the um, Ensemble Intercontemporain, and he was like, Conrad, you cannot have repeating notes like that. You cannot have things that establish steady rhythms. It's just wrong. Wait, he would... Oh God, the environment you were in. Was this guy a composer? Yeah. Um, and I'm totally blanking on his name, which is probably it, just as well. Yeah, no, um, you don't have to. And then yeah. the... Um, the guy who was the head of the sort of experimental instrumental techniques thing, which was another big division there, was like, all right, where are the extended instrumental techniques? There are no extended instrumental techniques. Oh, okay. There's uh, such characters. There'd yeah. be, you know, like if somebody... If oh, some, yeah. Like now a cartoon it, now. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now if somebody said that to me, like yeah. you can't have repeating notes, A, I could give them a million examples of yeah. something actually in their tradition that does that now. Right, yeah. And yeah. also I'd laugh in their face. Yeah. So what's the big... Yeah. Right. So um, I got to say that Barrio was delightful. Bless his heart. Speaking of repeating notes. Yeah, yeah. and he was like, good piece, comrade, good piece, good piece, keep going. Yeah. <laughs> Forever love him for that. So it was time to come back, um, and uh, there was a you know, beautiful opening at Oberlin, and they hired me, and so I got to run a uh, music and media program there and teach composing and theory and everything. Right before, I guess I was at McDowell Colony before that, I had a piece for the San Francisco Contemporary Music Players. Uh, and um, I was at McDowell Colony, I was having trouble kind of coming up with an opening image for it. And then I just was standing out, like it was early May. There were so many different sounds going on simultaneously. And I was like, okay, that's it. And I started writing this opening and I heard my formative teacher, Aurel's voice over my shoulder saying, you can't do that, you can't do that. And I was like, shush. So that was like another big break. Um, and the piece came out really beautifully. And when I took it out to Stony Brook for him to hear, in front of all his students, he was like, you can't do that, you can't do that. Are you, can't, para are you yeah. paraphrasing or quoting right now? It's like crazy to me that someone would be like, you can't do that. You know, I've, I, can almost, I, would, I can almost imagine them being like, well, this is problematic. Well, because the thing blah, I got, blah, blah, I, blah, I got, blah, a, I got a ble bless Arell's heart. He never equivocated. I'm thinking of a school in Boston where it was. I'd far rather have someone say you can't do that than to have someone showing a music to get a faraway look in their eyes and go, well, there's a question about the temporal integrity of a cyclic thing that I don't know. Maybe you want to think about. I find that vastly more insidious. Yeah. Because yeah. what they really mean is you can't do it. Yeah. So, and I love Aurel that he would just say, Aurel, bless his heart, I took something to him once, and he actually took the score and tore it up and threw it in the wastebasket. 
Can you believe that? What is, what, why? It was wonderful. It was something that I had been obsessed with and working on for three weeks and wasn't getting anywhere with. And he did exactly the right thing. I just started laughing when he did it. It was like, you're right, of course. I'm not getting anywhere on this. Start over, of course. Okay, so that wasn't like an aesthetic, uh, and it was just like about that particular piece. And yeah, that, yeah, you know. yeah, 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 uh, yeah. That's what I loved about him, is that you know, he was very expansive and direct and immediate guy, so there's never any question. And he probably didn't say you can't do that, but he might have said, well, I don't think that ostinato is a good idea, and I don't think that layering of ostinato is a good idea, and I think, you know, he might have, I'm probably, I'm, I'm, I'm sure I'm misrepresenting him, but the, the gist of it was you can't do that. And yeah. I, I looked him in the eyes, and there was a long, tense silence, and then he said, okay, let's go eat Chinese, which was wonderful, which was his acceptance that I was no longer his student. It was a beautiful thing. What happened to all those guys? I'm not even talking about the teachers now who are obviously Barrio and like all that mm-hmm. the whole generation mm-hmm. is mm-hmm. either in, incredibly old or gone. Mm-hmm. I'm talking about the students who are now your age. Mm-hmm who, in a certain sense, well, drank the Kool-Aid. And where are their careers now? Well, who, how, who are they as people now? Because oh, in, in, in a certain sense, you know, they're kind of been proved to be wrong because you have, because now you're doing that and you have lots of performances and there's entire large groups of people who do that. It's, they've been proved to be wrong. So what, yeah. well, do you um, meet them at all? Is there like a reunion where it's like awkward now? What makes me feel old sometimes is when I run into a group of contemporaries, composers, and a riff starts going around which goes, these kids don't realize how much we fought for their freedom. (laughs) That's that's the only thing that that gets me a little bit. And I'm like, you're right, but let's not make such a big deal about it. Okay. Uh, So I, I don't know anybody who's still writing out of my contemporaries who who hasn't gone on a very personal and different direction than than you know what our training and our starting out pointed at okay so they all kind of you know um, maybe it was in the opposite direction but it still had the same kind of curve as yours did oh yeah, yeah. oh yeah i'm i'm so not alone in that so absolutely not alone it's kind of beautiful to see it, you know what's tough is that maybe some people would have flourished if the environment had been uh, a more generous one. Some people who just stopped writing and went off and did other things might have flourished in a more congenial environment. People, you know, like me, who are like knuckleheaded enough <laughs> to keep going against it, <laughs> are the ones maybe still around or something like that. You think what, I don't want to generalize just, too much. Yeah, though. yeah, but you think it did weed a lot of people out, like the, just just the the environment being so harsh that actually. Yeah. People who probably had something good to say. There's yeah. so many reasons why people keep writing or don't keep writing. So I can, can't really ascribe it to that. Yeah, alone, yeah. You know. And it's a wonderful thing when people do. And hell, there are a lot of other good things in life if people don't. So it's not like the end of the world. But well, interestingly, what really did it, what, what changed me totally, was having the opportunity to write a first opera. That was like the second year I was at Oberlin. It was their 150th anniversary, and uh, they had a commissioning program where every composer got to, you know, they had every ensemble listed, and like the idea was that everyone would write something to celebrate, and there was Oberlin Opera Theater on the list, and they put it on out of obligation, I'm sure. No one ever thought that anyone would want to do that, but I was like, I'll do it. And they were like, you're crazy. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but I'd worked a lot with the um, director of the Opera Theater on, on some other projects, 
And she was like, yeah, let's do it. And the um, music director was wonderfully supportive. So I got to write her first opera. I got a lot of help with it, a lot of inspiration. Peter Sellers was just starting off his work in Baroque opera. He had a Handel opera uh, produced in Boston, and I got on a plane to go see it, and it was like, okay, now I know what this opera is going to be about and how it's going to be. And I was a huge fan of Laurie Anderson at that time, and I saw all this commonality between Baroque opera and her work, simultaneous presence of very intense emotion and extreme formality and the tension between the two. So I was like, okay, but it's going to be a mythological subject, and it's going to be in Da Capo Arias. And so I started sketching the, uh, the libretto, and I had a lot of help from wonderful mentor, uh, librettist, libretto translator, and distinguished music critic Andrew Porter, who was writing for The New Yorker at that time. He helped me out hugely on you it. You wrote your own libretto? Yeah, yeah. No one else was going to, so I had to do it. How do you write a libretto? Get me, give me the short. Well, I guess that maybe there isn't a short answer, but I always think about that because, yeah. yeah. Okay, a sent. Sometimes a sentence is probably going to last for five minutes, right? Mm-hmm. So, how do you craft a sentence knowing that it's going to it's going to last for five minutes? And you know, maybe you want a melisma to have here. Like, how do you think about words in that sense? Well, the homework I gave myself before before starting the, the, this libretto was to uh, read a lot of librettos for operas I'd never heard because I figured I'm going to be writing a libretto for an opera I haven't heard. So I should find out what librettos look like before they have music to them. Oh, that's a good idea. Yeah, and that proved like a very useful study. And the decision to use you know, extreme formality kept me out of one of the most common pitfalls that starting out and sometimes not so starting out, librettists get into, which is, um, you know, talkiness. There are a few things, a few operas that actually do work this way, but generally they just don't. Taking a prose play script and singing it, like, uh, Yeah, yeah, it's always, You got it, yeah, yeah. Endless, undifferentiated ariosa was what they call it. So that wasn't going to happen. Anyway, so in order to know whether my libretto was working, I sketched vocal lines as I wrote the libretto. Uh, so, and I thought, these are, you know, just scratch vocal lines. This is purely a test of concept. So I, don't, I didn't even think about what the vocal lines were. I just, That's like the opposite of uh, what Gershwin did, actually. Like uh, when he would write, he would write music with lyrics. He would write the music first, and then he'd make up like some ridiculous you know, right, lyrics that right. go along with it. But you would yeah. do the opposite. You would write melodies that you knew that you were going to throw out, or that you were probably going to throw out. And what was constant was the words. Yeah, it was a test for the words. If the words, if the words generated a melody, and if the melodies flowed together well, and of course, as I the further I got into it, the more I suspected that those throwaway melodies were not going to be throwaway and they were all like as diatonic as could possibly be and I was like well I don't know I'm getting to like them a lot well when I go back and you know I'll put all sorts of good modern harmonies with them it'll be okay and then when it came time to go back and figure out what the actual music was going to be it was like ooh that sucks ooh I don't like that at all ooh well all right and it just turned out to be the most transparent, triadic music you could have ever imagined. And this, and this is basically what your language is now, or well, it, not, it, it, it was it was an earlier extreme, version. It's a more yeah. extreme than that. Yeah. It's okay. Even, it's even more trans. You know, it's <laughs> these days I got I have you know 
denser harmonies than I used to. Yeah, but okay, so it was a maybe it was the beginning of yeah, but what, definitely, what you would say now. Yeah, definitely it was a piece of music that I would still stand by. Yeah, yeah and what caused it was you saying, I'm just going to make it simple now and then I'll go back later mm-hmm. and make it correct. Cor- yeah, <laughs> cor- correct, uh-huh. you know. So, and then once you went back, you were like, okay, I can adjust it a little bit. But you know, there's nothing wrong with it, actually. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the piece just turned out to be in this kind of limpid, transparent style. Did you have a fear of what people were going to think? You know, you know what I mean when well, I say that? Know, because all of a sudden you're doing this very simple thing, more simple than what you're doing now. It's, you know, your original intention was, okay, people aren't going to hear this version of it and mm-hmm. I'll go back. And then you're mm-hmm. like, actually, they are going to hear this version mm-hmm. of it. And yeah. then... I think I just have this capacity at sometimes just to keep going on conviction, even 
when I know it's going to get me in trouble. I knew it was good. I knew it was working. The people who mattered most to me knew it was working. The conductor I was working with, the director I was working with, they were like, this is weird, but it works. Porter, the libretto guy, he was like, no one else is doing this, Conrad, but it works. And Phil Glass had gotten to be a really important mentor at that point. And he was like, uh-huh, it looks interesting. This could work. That was enough. I wasn't alone. Uh, I felt like I had, I had plenty of support. And then when it started going into production, the, the singers just were crazy about it and gave it their all. The orchestra played like angels. My, my buddies on the faculty all dived in to play in the pit. And the audience just went crazy. You know, The thing worked. It worked in every dramatic way. And it worked in terms of that music with that drama, with that situation. And it was, it was like, whoa, I never thought I could do this. I never thought I could speak to an audience totally beyond the contemporary music aficionado audience and do it in a voice that I felt was completely authentic to me. The, the production process just couldn't have been more, more perfect and the production couldn't have been better. Uh, beautiful recordings and everything. And there was, you know, general consternation about it. The, the, the critics didn't know what to do about it, but they got it that everyone was going crazy in the audience, but they, you know, they were worried. Worried? What do you mean worried? So worried that, that they didn't get it or that they couldn't talk about it the way they wanted to talk no, about it? No, that, that, uh, um, it's hard to remember that, how much critics writing, even in the 80s, I mean, in New York Times, was much of a Donald Hanahan? When was Nixon in China? Around then, 1985, 1986? I don't, I don't know. Um, he reviewed the, the premiere in Houston, and, and he was, this music is McDonald's music. That was his quote. This is, this is fast food music of the worst possible kind. The implication was that the decline of civilization was based in this music. So, and that was a, an attitude that a lot of writers about music had at the time, worry. I mean, they were, they were convinced about what constituted virtue, and this was not virtuous. And that didn't bother me too much. It was interesting, though. Uh, a very important uh, mentor had been Jacob Druckmann, and I got, had gotten very close with him. And when I took the score to him, you know, we sat, he was composer in residence in the Philharmonic at that point. So I went to visit him uh, at, at Avery Fisher, and we sat down in the cafe downstairs. Uh, it's a very vivid memory to me. And, and he was going through the manuscript, and he kept looking at it. And then he turned to me, and he said, Conrad, I see nothing of you in this music. And I'm like, Jacob, this is the most personal thing I've ever written. Actually, it took a long time to work in the experiences from that opera and to figure out what I was going to do with them. Where do you go next after an experience like that? What's it feel like getting, did you feel like you got out of anything by doing that? Okay, so the way you're describing it is like almost, I don't know, like epiphany or in some way. You're like, oh, okay, this is what I want to do. This is what I, this is how I do it. And I've come up with a pretty good methodology. I like the results. I like who it's speaking to. And before that, it almost sounds like you were stuck in this other type of world. I I, but Did you I feel like you were emerging from the world? I mean, what's, what's that feeling like of that kind of like, oh, this is it. Got it. It's a theme in your questions, which is when you experience a moment of new freedom, do you feel regret over the sense of retrospective constraint? I was happy with the music I was writing before. Yeah, I guess I was just a lot happier with what I was 
what I what I'd come to, and maybe the sheer posture of opposition was what was important. Maybe the the combination of knowing that this worked for me and knowing that it was putting me really out in the outfield in terms of what most of my colleagues were doing and in terms of what you know most people who I was close with were expecting. But if it's working, then it feels good to be in the outfield. If it's working. If it's yeah, not working, it, it'd be in it the can, outfield. It can, be a awful. Little, it can be a little lonely, but, yeah. uh, but there didn't seem to be any choice in it. I mean, so this was this 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 was me, and I wasn't going to not do it. You know. Do you feel like the environment has moved more towards you? Do you feel like the outfield now, like now the field has moved, and now you're like yeah. in the pitcher's mound? <laughs> oh yeah. And you're like, yeah. well, I didn't move actually. That the field moved towards me. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Now it. everybody's looking at me. Pretty yeah. much it. I mean, out in, Ober- in Oberlin, they're going to do a um, a piece of mine called "I Wish They All Could Be," uh, which I wrote in like 1986. It was also kind of a reaction. I uh, assisted Glass on his production of Akhenaten at English National Opera in the summer of 1985. Everywhere I went in the kind of music world, there was this quiet feeling in England that I was like working with the barbarians. <laughs> it's just this this, terror, this kind of worry, concern, and like mm, something the matter with all of this. <laughs> Worst of all, when I went up to the Orkney Islands to your Maxwell Davies Festival, and they're like, you're working with whom? <laughs> really? Yeah, yeah. So um, when I got a commission, also from San Francisco Contemporary Music Players, to write a piece for a festival in England, I was like, you know what? I just want to wear my colors on my sleeve. And so I, I based the piece on um, fragments from three Beach Boys songs, uh, and it's a piece for a mixed instrumental octet. Which songs? Uh, I get around in my room and California Girls, which is the where I wish they all could be comes from. And it, it was sort of a, a effort at pulling together a lot of the experience of also being a teenager in San Francisco. Because in addition to building the harpsichords and taking you know piano lessons with this uh, Schnabel protege, uh, we did nothing but Beethoven and Schubert. Um, it was the sort of birth of San Francisco Acid Rock and the Fillmore Auditorium and Avalon Ballroom and Hate Street and all that. And at the time, we were living a couple of blocks from Hate Street, so it was all kind of new and amazing. So it was this experience of having kind of one foot in classical piano lessons and one foot in the Fillmore Auditorium. And the, the piece is all about these sort of crazy juxtapositions of different kinds of music and different social ambiences like butted up against each other. Oh, it was just considered impossible in the 80s. Uh, it's like, where is this guy coming from? Uh, they did it at, at MoMA on the Summer Garden a couple of summers ago, and it was like, oh, great. <laughs> now they're going to do it out at Oberlin. And it's like, I like the fact that something I wrote coming on 25 years ago feels you know, kind of fresh to people now. Does it like feel that. fresh to you? Like where well, you are <laughs> now and where you were in what, what year is this? Early eighties, you said, mid or mid eighties, mid late eighties. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, um, so I, I, I guess uh, the fact that I'm still fond of it after all this time must mean something's good about it. But would you um, do it again? Now? Oh no, no, okay. it's so far away from from what I would do. Not that I wouldn't do it, and not that there's anything you know. Oh, I was there, and now I'm here. It's just like I, I don't know. I've just gone somewhere else. Where have you gone? I, I don't know. I'm trying to figure it out. I'm working on a song cycle right now um, with fabulous lyrics that Mark Campbell wrote for me. And I'm just flailing away trying to find my way into them. 
It's absolutely flailing. I hope by the end of the summer I have found my way in. You still flail? Oh, boy, do I flail. You yeah. think it's always good to flail? Uh, if I had my druthers, I wouldn't have to flail, but I'm human, and so yeah. I guess it's part of being human is that I have to flail. Um, and this is the first extended piece that I've been working on since finishing the big opera that I've been working on for the last few years. So there's a huge amount of musical momentum that gets built up working on an opera on the scale of the one that I just finished. So when you start something totally fresh, it's like, wait a minute, where am I? You know, it's, like, it's like checking in for the first time in a few years to see where I am. You're, you're mostly opera now, well, nowadays. I love it. I love yeah. it. I just love it. I love it. What's it like being an opera composer? Do you feel like you have a certain type of brain that works well for opera? Why, why not other? Because there are opera composers. Yeah. What yeah. makes an opera composer? Uh, well, in terms I of... I couldn't uh, imagine myself writing yeah. an opera. Like, I don't, yeah, even, yeah. don't even know yeah. how to start thinking about it. Right. So, yeah. how do you do it? Where do you get an idea? Well, to start with, um, I think my brain is wired almost literally, in a way that mixes words and music a lot. I think that, that words are always making music in my ears, and music is always making words. And um, the two parts of my brain are just very linked up, and I get, I get a huge thrill out of the thing that can happen when a sentence sung becomes something that's neither the words alone nor the music alone, but something that only exists as that combination of things. So that's a start. start. So that's, that's part of it, but that's not the whole thing by any means. I, I kind of grew up backstage, you know, my, my stepfather's choreographer, and, you know, I, I sort of have a bit in my blood, not spoken theater, but, you know, performance. And also probably a good sense of a, a good visual sense. Yeah, right. I think so, yeah. And I've seen a lot of dance, and I go to a lot of theater. Do you picture stuff on stage when you have like uh, lyrics and a melody, and all of a sudden you're like, oh, I know how that would look? Oh, what's interesting is, um, for me, what I've learned is I have to visualize the staging while I'm writing, but I also know that that's never going to be the staging I'm going to see. Yeah, exactly, because you're not in control of it, right? And it's, and it's right that I should never see it, because if I'm working with the right director, what he or she will come up with will be vastly superior to the thing I see. And it'll reflect what the singing actors bring to it. It'll reflect all sorts of things that are not in my head when I'm conceiving it on the page. But what matters is, if I can conceive of a staging, there is a staging. And if there is a staging, then there are many stagings. Both, it helps me in terms of vividness, in terms of imagining my way into the music in the most vivid way. And it also is a proof of concept. So if you somehow wrote it without a staging in, staging in mind, then you actually run the risk of the person who's staging it being like, this is not stageable. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, but ideally that should never happen because, yeah. I mean, the other thing is I, I really like collaborating. Uh, Opera is just a very collaborative endeavor, even in the writing of it. So if you're, if you're fortunate, you have a director or at least a director mentor or someone like that on from the beginning uh, who can say, uh, you just added $75,000 to your production budget by that one thing you're doing there. You know, <laughs> be aware of it. <laughs> that sort of thing. You, you have that budgetary, do you have a budgetary mind when you're thinking Not of this? Not really, but you know, and I don't know whether it's $75,000, but it's more likely to be, you're asking for trouble with that. 
see if you can figure out a way that 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 you can uh, that you can get what you need without that thing because that thing is trouble Albert Brooks, I think I'm getting the uh, the comedian and uh, screenwriter and actor. Yeah, yeah, he talks about like he recently started writing books because mm-hmm. he's like, I love writing books because there's not someone going. Actually, that scene where he gets off the helicopter yeah, yeah. is an extra fifty thousand dollars, so right. you can't write okay, that right. in. Like yeah. you can do these amazing theatrical things while just writing a book. Right, that's but the you're saying you have you the get. same type of you have the same type of brain now where you're like, okay. Like no on-stage helicopters, you know, yeah. or no, you know, no riding in on an actual horse right. type thing. Yeah. Okay, yeah, and some of it is is, is kind of obvious, um, and then some some it's great to have help with. The opera I just finished, the production team that we put together for the last year of working on it was just one of the great, great working environments I've ever had. The conductor is Steve Osgood, who's part of it from the very very beginning. It was like really amazing because he is unusual in that he's knows singers he knows conducting all of that and he's got a tremendous theatrical and dramaturgical sense so he was like on top of it from the start and then when we brought in uh john henry davis uh, stage director uh he brought a kind of fresh structural look to uh to the libretto and we all we all knew that there were some dramatic pacing issues and then Emma Lively, who was the acted as the producer for the big workshop we did, um, was just you know there with the practical stuff every step of the way. And that table over there every month for a year, we'd have a, a three-hour production meeting, and we basically rewrote the opera from back to front. And we'd sit there for three hours, and we'd work out how we needed to change the last scene. And then I'd write for a month, and come back and Steve would have had the music a day or two before and he'd sing through it and play it at the piano and it was like okay good last scene works okay what do we have to do to the second last thing to make it now work with the last scene that doesn't hurt your heart a little bit oh we can't do this no but that's the best part yeah there's always that yeah, yeah. but you just get over it you're you, you know, have to kind of I mean, get you're living over in the real world it. um one of the things I've learned to do is um I don't have that reaction so much um when Steve first, the very beginning of the project, was giving me critique on stuff, I was duly writing it all down, thinking to myself, who the fuck does this guy think he is telling, telling me how to write? But, you know, I still wrote all his notes down. And then about a, you know, I'd wait a day or two, get over how pissed I was. Uh, and then I'd look at them and I was like, well, I think it's a terrible idea, but I'll try writing it. All right. And then I'd write it. And about halfway through writing, the difference was... Ah, it does work better, doesn't it? <laughs> so, uh, so you know, you work with someone like that for a few years. By the time you're the third of your third or fourth year of working together, and he says you have to redo that. That's just not working. It's like, yeah, you're right. Okay, good. <laughs> oh, well, I should write an opera. I think I'd be a better person at the end. <laughs> I think, I, I, like the two days it takes you to get over it. I think that's just who I am. I'm that two days angry guy all the time. Well, it's charming. So really. Um, there's just a huge sense of practicality now that you accept at all levels. Yeah, I accept and enjoy, actually. Enjoy? Yeah. Have you ever pushed back? Have you ever said, actually, you know what, we're going to have to, it, it is going to have to cost an extra two grand because this is the centerpiece of my idea. This is what needs to happen. Haven't had to have that conversation yet. Um, don't think I will. You know, the, the wonderful thing with. Um, it's taken me a long, 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 long time to learn this. I was like the worst kind of micromanager when I started. Um, but just, uh, you know, it's only been in the last maybe 10 years that I've really learned this. If you pick your collaborators carefully, 
you really, really let them do what they're good at. You really don't stay out of their way. You, you stay engaged, you, but you really, really... Do you pick them every time? Oh, this... Okay, that siren stopped. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay, well, we're in New York, people. We are in New York, yeah. yes. Do you, so pick, do you work with the same people every time? You have, like, a group of... Um, no, it's been different people. Um, you can't always pick, but, boy, when you can, it's great. And, um, but I'm saying, do you have like a, a team now that you trust, and you you know you're like the, and it's time to get the band back together again because we know how to jam. Well, yeah, I have I have a team like that, uh, but the actual circumstances of production don't always allow that team to. For one thing, they're busy. If something comes up, and they're already scheduled. Like, whoop, too bad. Um, but it's a nice mix because there are people who I always know I want to work with. And there are people like the director Noah Himmelstein, who I uh, got to work with for the first time last year at Urban Arias down in, in D.C. And he's kind of just coming up as a director. And wow, he's good. And I wouldn't have known that if, it ha- if we hadn't been thrown together on that production. Fortunately, uh, Bob Wood, who runs that company, has really good taste and really good judgment. And he's seen some of, the, some of Noah's work and thought, okay, this is the guy to go with. And he was right. So... I would work with Noah in a second now. But on the other hand, anytime I can work with Steve Osgood conducting, absolutely. Anytime I can work with John Henry Davis directing, it's wonderful. But, you know, there, there are so many fabulous people out there, too. And you, you see enough other people's work. I also, you know, I have a short list of people whose work I love, and we're just waiting. And f- fortunately, they seem to like my work. And we're just waiting for the chance to get to work together. For instance, Mark Campbell, who's my other favorite librettist in the country. Um, Michael Corey and, and uh, uh, Mark Campbell are just the two greatest lyricist librettists going around right now, I think, just for me personally. And I've gotten to work with Michael a lot, which is a huge privilege. And I've followed Mark's work a lot, uh, but hadn't had a chance to work with him yet. Then Keith Jameson, this wonderful tenor, sings at the Met, singing all over now. And he commissioned a song cycle for his debut uh, CD. I kind of knew what I wanted it to be about. I'd been, like everyone else these days, fascinated with the Schubert Winterreise. It seems like everyone has that. I don't know if everyone, but at least a half dozen of my friends and colleagues have it on the brain right now. Um, And I, I was like, okay, what I need is something vulnerable, confessional, first person uh, for Keith. And I got the idea that it should start at Columbus Circle. And he should have just been dumped by his, well, let's say they'd been together a year, boyfriend. The boyfriend who he thought was going to be the love of his life. Okay, so they weren't living together yet. Also, you know, it wasn't like someone who's been in the fabric of your life for 20 years. That's why you picked a year, right? That's a good, yeah. Yeah, so it's like a year, like, but really thinking this was it. And the boyfriend tells him he's splitting up with him as he's getting into the cab to go to JFK and leaves him at Columbus Circle. Um, So he walks down Broadway trying to figure out what to do with the rest of his life and each song is a different cross street. Uh, So there's one at at 57th and then I hadn't picked the cross streets but I figured, nor had I picked exactly how far I would get. I had dinner with Mark and I was like, Mark, I think I need to write this one, but would you kind of help me with it? And he says, well, what's it about? And I told him, and about halfway through the description, he was like, I'm writing that for you, sorry. <laughs> I'm like, 
Whoa, really? Did yeah. you time? Wait, did you time the? Uh, I like that idea. Did you time the cross streets? Like, did you walk in and be like, okay, this song has to be no, you know, but three he must and a half have. minutes. But he must have. He must have, and he picked the cross streets. So there's 57th going round and round Columbus Circle like a ball in a roulette, and then there's a little interlude in front of a theater, and then it's 45th Street. It's like a death. Wait, this isn't this isn't staged though, is it? No, no, okay. no it's, it's just a song no, cycle. Just yeah. a song cycle, okay. but that's what ha- that's what the songs portray. And then the, the first one is called five seven fifty seven, and then there's four five, and basically he's he's thinking of everything that didn't happen that could have, if they'd had a life together. And what he sees is Broadway stretching, straight ahead of him, a city with no life. And then he gets to thirty uh, fifth, and he's like stuck in a scrum of tourists. And uh, he's visualizing smashing his ex-lover's head in and burning him to pieces. And he's just, he's just that point of total rage. And then he's at 32nd, and it's in Koreatown. And then finally he's at 25th. And he looks up at the building called New York Life. And someone else looks up at the same moment. And they look at each other and share a New York smile. And he keeps walking and thinks, you know, maybe he'll have a life after all.
ideas always come from scenarios like this. Do you ever have it? Like, is there ever a sonic picture, or is it always a here's a scenario that has a bunch of emotions and also a process, and also I'm going to add this kind of uh, um, geographic element to it where you can actually have cross streets and movements and different places and different people coming in. Is it that, or is it a sonic? picture and then you kind of superimpose a situation onto it well i guess i must start with the situation and i think in this case i started with the singer see that i think that's what makes an opera composer probably yeah yeah yeah, yeah. a feeling for a, a, a very intimate feeling for narrative i think and a, and a feeling that that for me music can be born of narrative but it's also born of words and so it, wor- it works both ways for that it's a situation first Seems to be, yeah, yeah. Or it's an existing story that so takes me over that I can't get it out of my mind. There's a novel right now I'm reading for a second time that I fear may may be the object <laughs> of the next opera I try to write. Why do you fear it? <laughs> You're just like, uh-oh, here comes an opera. Well, it's, I, I guess by, by fear is like, I don't who knows whether I could even get the rights for it? Who knows who would ever produce it? Oh, you're like, here comes an opera. Oh, God, the logistics of an uh, opera. Yeah, Mm. but uh, it's rare enough that something grabs me that way, and so when it does, I tend to to honor it. This is a a novel. um, I'll speak out of turn here, and if nothing happens, well, you'll know that I was dreaming about it at some point. It's a novel called The Golem and the Genie, and it's uh, set in uh, 1895 New York, and it's, uh, it's about a... A golem, a Jewish, you know, legendary figure is made out of clay and given life for emergency situations. This is a female golem who's created by some feckless guy to be his wife. Um, and he brings her to life on the ship coming to America and then promptly dies. So she's a golem without a master trying to deal with life in New York City. And part of being a golem is that you're designed to sense the needs and desires of your master and fulfill them instantly. And if your master dies, it means that you see and feel and sense the needs and desires of every other human being around you. And you have a almost uncontrollable urge to satisfy every one of them. So that's what she has to deal with. (laughs) She's made, she's constructed to be useful to others and she has to find her own integrity and her own identity within it. And the genie is a... um, is a spirit from the um, Syrian desert who uh, gets captured by a wizard and put into a jar. And, and when the jar gets uh, worked on by a Syrian tin maker down in little Syria, which is where World Trade Center is now, the jar explodes and this large, handsome, totally naked guy, very angry, <laughs> explodes out of the jar. And he's been there for a thousand years. And he's extremely pissed that he's stuck in the form of being a human being. And genies are totally irresponsible. They answer to no one. They do whatever they want. They take any form they want. So he's a person who is the opposite. He's absolute free will and absolute do whatever he wants, absolute irresponsibility. And he has to learn to accept, to to be part of this world that he's gotten stuck in. When you're using an existing text like this, (laughs) are you adding your own thing to it? Are you interpreting it? What do you feel like you need to add to it besides, obviously besides music, obviously you have a, you're a person with your own opinions and aesthetics and worldview. Mm-hmm. Do, do you pick things that have that? Do you put your own take into things that don't have that? What's your well, responsibility? Because they can always read the, you know, they could always read the book. What is an opera ad? 
Again, something I remember Phil Glass talking about. He said, you know, Conrad, you live with an opera for a long time so in writing it, so you better be sure it's something you feel very passionate about because you're going to be spending a lot of time with it. So that's kind of requirement number one. It has to, it has to be something that so fascinates you and so just takes you over that you would give three or four years of your life to it. I don't know. Great stories are opportunities. Great stories that have many different emotional circumstances within them. By the way, that's one of Conrad's laws of, of opera librettos. Uh, it goes, the better the libretto, the worse the synopsis. Great librettos have terrible synopsises. Great librettos are the ones where you're reading the synopsis five minutes before the curtain's ready to go up trying to figure out, and you can't keep track. Wait a minute, who was in love with whom? But now they're betrayed by whom? And now they can't, now secretly there's someone else, but now, wait a minute, but now these two are together. Why is that? Because a libretto is already such a reduction of a complicated idea that it's, it's so reduced that if you were to reduce it more, then you take an essential part out of it. Different reason. Yeah. Uh, librettos um, flourish on changes of emotional state because the different emotional states are what generate different, emotional, different musical impulses. And in order to keep a, a, fa a musical fabric that is changeable and dynamic and, uh, and feels alive, you have to have a lot of situation change. You have to have, this person has a lot to be happy about, except they're not because they just learned that, uh-oh, but could it be that, we're not sure, this other person, oh, really is longing for something, oh, is never gonna get it. Wait a minute, maybe will. Uh-oh, here these two together. One has a secret, the other has a secret. Are they gonna tell each other or are they not gonna tell each other? It needs more incident than ever happens in a contemporary naturalistic play. If it's going to be a opera based on a concrete narrative, like uh -huh. all of yours do, yeah. including your song cycles and everything right. you've talked about, yeah. then you really can't, then you can't reduce it to a synopsis. Well, like that the, means that syn extremes. the synopsis will be confusing because it will have a richness of incident it's hard to keep track of in a synopsis form. And if it's a simple synopsis, it's possible that there won't be enough incident to generate music of sufficient variety in life to hold an audience or to hold my interest as a composer. Great. Well, I think that's a good place to end it. Well, you, yeah. have to, you ask great questions. Okay. It's a real pleasure. Okay. Yeah. Thank you.